Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mm, 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 mm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. I will be the Cody of this episode, and, and cool. we yeah. I also have stuff to sh- to physically show you, but can describe. <laughs> maybe maybe when That's you do that, just let me know so I can take a screenshot for the Twitter. Oh, Ooh, good idea! <laughs> I'll dodge out of my, my face out of it then. But I have uh, tarot cards with me. Oh, Ooh. sick! We man, that oh opening God. is so good when it's in it's color so like good. that. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. If we have time, you should do tarot readings for us. I don't know if you can do that remotely. Does that happen? You can do it remotely. I don't know if if Emily knows how to. Do you know how to do tarot readings? I can say it on a pod. I'm just like just a very beginner to it. So I just got Mm -hmm. a deck like when I was in Boise. Nice. Nice. I've never had mine done before. But this is Try Love, the podcast where anything can happen. Uh, I hope you, listener... If you're listening on a Tuesday when this episode releases, or another one, I hope you're not wearing anything new or carrying anything new. Uh, you're not supposed to do that, apparently, according to this movie. Uh, but this is a literal roundtable podcast where we talk about movies we saw or people we met at the Trilon Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find us on Twitter at Trilove Podcast. You can find the Trilon at Trilon Cinema and at Trilon.org, where you can get tickets and merch and other cool ways to support the Trilon. My name is Jason Daphnis. My disease is phone calls and appointments, and you can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. It really is so true for you, isn't it? We were just talking about that. Um, this wasn't the one that, that I had picked, but after your piece of advice earlier, I would say, to hell with Tuesday, I'll do as I like. I'm Harry <laughs> Mackin, and you can find me on Twitter at Shiitake Harry. Oh, and we are very, very pleased to be joined by returning guest, Emily Sui. Emily, tell us where we can find you and, uh, and I guess, what you want people to know about you. Yeah. Hey, guys. Um, you can find me at Stoop Kids Pod, which is hey. a podcast we all make about the show Hey Arnold, the uh, beloved Nickelodeon 90s show uh, by Craig Bartlett. And yeah, you can find me there. We talk about it every week. Uh, it's a great podcast and a great television show. And yeah. Let's the get thing, into uh, movies, though, now. <laughs> the thing not enough people talk about about Stoop Kids is the fact that we don't just talk. You make all of the art. Cody does all the tweeting. You do all the Instagram. It's a real labor of love, work of art. For uh, everybody and, except and for me. Wanna, <laughs> and I just want to recognize that. Uh, you know, everybody has something to contribute. Cody does something. I do something. Emily does. Everybody does something on that show. Uh, but yes, today's film is Cleo from 5 to 7, uh, directed by Agnes Varda. And I did look up the pronunciation. It's Agnes. I'm not going to try and speak French in this episode, but uh, I'm not going to hold it to anybody else either. If you want to call her Agnes, be my guest. 1962 film directed by Agnes Varda. Uh, it stars... Um, well, I'll get to the starring in a second, but Florence, uh, who sings and performs under the stage name Cleopatra or Cleo for short, is diagnosed with cancer one day. Uh, the movie picks up during a terror reading that spells her immediate doom, and it follows her in the ensuing hours of the day, uh, moving in roughly real time as she floats aimlessly through the neighbors, neighborhoods of Paris, looking for distraction and consolation from friends and strangers alike. Uh, it stars Corinne Machand as, uh, excuse me, Florence, aka Cleo. It stars Antoine Bourcelier as Antoine, a soldier that Cleo meets in the park. Uh, Dominique Devray plays Angel, a uh, an assistant to Cleo, who um, is also a confidant of sorts. Uh, Dorothy Blank plays the character Dorothy. This is a recurring theme. Uh, Cleo's friend, and she's also a sculpture model in the art district of, of Paris. Uh, Jose Luis uh, de Villayonga. That's a Spanish name uh, as Jose Cleo's lover who appears just for a short scene, but it's a pretty funny uh, scene. Michelle Legrand, uh, who is a known composer, plays Bob, the pianist. I, Emily's doing the everything, all the hand symbols because rocks to see that guy in this movie, um, which is and, wild because also he's hot. Like he looks like John Mayer in this movie. He, he, he a could, little he bit. Put it away. Yes, uh, he totally Sarah, does. I had Sarah the same J, thought. Sergey Korber plays Maurice, the writer, who is just kind of like the little steely Dan freak to Bob, the pianist. Uh, it was widely hailed, this film, as a product of the French New Wave, particularly Var- uh, with respect to Varda's editing. She was one of the few prominent female figures of the free- French New Wave movement, and this movie really helped solidify her in that space. Um, Emily, this was your first time seeing uh, Cleo from 5 to 7, right? What were your impressions? 
Yeah. So I actually, I've never seen any of, of our Dawes films, but I was super excited about this whole series because Cody and a friend of the podcast, Jenny Ackerson, uh, are such big fans of her work. And there's like this whole series at the Trilon. So I thought Cleo, especially as like the one to kick off, would be a great introduction to her work. And I um, think it really was. I did watch, though, before I went to it, uh, La Pointe Court, which is her first film from 1955, also in black and white. And um, I see some like similarities and some stuff she brought in from that realm into Cleo. Mm. Uh, but yeah, I I loved this movie so much. I, it was such a blast to watch at the Trilon. It looked fantastic on film. Um, and I have so much to say about it. So where to begin? Um, that is a great question. Uh, I'll let you just guide that starting point then. Yeah. Uh, so just like to back up Varda's uh, films in general, she takes like a photographic uh, lens in her films and she's she's had a lot of like her background is in photography more so than like cinematography or, you know, film history and more in like art history too. So I had a pulled a quote from her where she said, I take photographs or I make films or I put films in the photos or photos in the films. And I think uh, that really, that's so cool. (laughs) Yeah. That stood out to me a lot. I mean, especially just because this is in black and white, but you have um, really beautiful like compositions throughout the whole movie, different shots where there's maybe like side by side, but not 50, 50 frames, but a, you know, split where that's like a third of the frame and then two thirds Mm -hmm. frame where something is going on completely different from like the main actor, actress. Um, Yeah. A lot of like really cool shots of the two characters talking with something in between them shots of the park and just like all of the cityscape stuff, the slice of life stuff which is so fantastic to see mm-hmm. throughout the movie um contrasted with the uh gothic ominous dark cloud over her head cleo um <laughs> who's who's dealing with some really heavy shit in this movie um and yeah no one's really hearing her out no one's really understanding i think where she's coming from and you have all of these like symbols either visually or through the music about like where, how she's feeling and um, just like what's going on with like the ominous bad luck, dark signs of death. And, you know, she's like walking around the city, like a ghost. Yeah. Oh man. That's such a good way to characterize that because that was, I've seen this movie twice now and the second time knowing the, the full breadth of the movie, that stuff really stuck out to me is the fact that Cleo, I mean, the, the movie opens very sort of pointedly with that tarot reading that establishes that she's sort of a person who reads it almost, I mean, almost narcissistically sort of like reads. um, Oh, yeah, sorry. Um, like reads uh, everything that's happening to her um, as something like reads the world as as it's presented to her and everything has a lot of meaning for her personal life. And as she's walking around, all of the conversation she's hearing and the music she's hearing and the news she hears and like the African masks in the display cases um, that that sicken her or that that um, the sort of like um, sideshow people that she sees that that freak her out, right? Like all of it is so closely conflated and uh, co-aligned with her emotional throughline in this movie. And I think, like especially because, like you said, it's like in near real time, you really feel that, right? Like I, I think I really felt like like Cleo is projecting so much onto the world, and in turn believes that everything she's seeing is imprinting on her, right? Mm-hmm, like she's mm-hmm. very in her own head in this movie. Well, that's what that uh, one scene in the middle where she goes to get a drink and she's wearing sunglasses. She puts her own song on the radio and nobody recognizes. Nobody fucking talks. Yes. Actually, somebody says, like, I'm so sick of this song. It's like the externally the world is now like always pointing away from her when she wants attention the most, when she wants somebody yep. to ask what's wrong. Uh, Emily, did you get any of that vibe? I guess like I did not know that Varda was specifically known for her photographic eye toward the camera. I mean, it makes sense. Like. I guess the closest comparison I have just because I'm a little weenie film boy is uh, to that intro scene with the, with the tarot reading is um, like a Wes Anderson type, like straight down, straight down the barrel, uh, very like right angles, very colorful, very like moving a, a little bit funny in it's like macabreness. Uh, what did that show? Like, are you 
did you get any of that vibe of like what the world is doing around her at the same time through that uh, photographic eye through that like specific style of hers? Well, yeah, and we could get into it, but I, I think it's a very feminist film. Uh, it's really strong feminist energy and very much through like her perspective and her female gaze instead mm. of what mm. you have in every other thing we've ever seen that exists is through the male gaze. Um, but yeah, so you're kind of seeing just like everyone glance at her, everyone gaze on her, everyone looking at her. And she like, just is kind of floating past the whole world and the whole city, um, with this heavy thing in her head that only she knows about that only she like understands and feels the fear of. And, um, she really just pretty much everyone throughout the whole movie up until she meets her friend in the, um, art studio, the, like the sculpture modelist, uh, everyone's like so unsupportive of her. And, and I get that they're also like, oh, you're, you know, you're vain and you're childish and you're a pop star and you know, you're a beautiful woman. So be happy, smile, Cleo. Like, yeah, you have a cancer, uh, diagnosis hanging over your head right now, but like, Everyone's pretty much like, ah, this silly, beautiful pop star can just, what is she worrying about? She has this amazing life probably, or, you know, they're projecting whatever they are onto her. And you even hear some of their thoughts in the film too, like um, her assistant's thoughts, which aren't so nice towards her. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, for the most part, it's kind of like Cleo is very, yeah, internalizing this. And I think the way it's shot is very much like, this is her perspective. Yes. And um, yeah, that's, that's clear. I think through a lot of the other characters she encounters too, is just like whether they're ignoring her completely or not supportive in any way, not giving her emotional support that she needs or Mm -hmm. um, any validation of like the fear that she's going through. Right. Up and up until she has some more interactions with some women in her life and her friend in her life. Um, who's like, oh my God, like, I didn't realize you were going through this. And then obviously at the end, which is like the big breakthrough moment. Um, but yeah, it's shot so beautifully. And I do think, yeah, that the, the uh, intention is is clear there with like her perspective and everything. Yeah, I love yeah. that you're bringing up perspective so much because it is mostly like most of this movie is about what the characters around her don't know about her. Like all we know, we pick up in the middle of the story after she actually knows she has cancer. It's not like we see her getting the results or anything. We see her when she's already in a state of like, I won't say like desperate need or anything, but she's like seeking guidance. She's seeking an answer, right? Like we see her in a moment where she needs something from people around her that she's just mm-hmm. not going to get. Cause she's not revealing to most people that she's got this diagnosis. Uh, the people who see her just assume that she, like you said, Emily, just assume that she's down a little prima Donna ing about something. Um, but she's literally like, she's afraid that she'll it's die. Diva. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and then, well, and in- like th- there's the, we can get to the pivot point because it's about the music and we should probably make that a separate conversation. Uh, oh, I'm, I'm really mic. interested in the music because um, everything that, that Emily said, it reminded me so much of how important Cleo's status as an artist and a quote unquote diva is in this movie, right? Like she is in this movie, right? Like the, the very first scene frames it. She receives the death card and the tarot reader says like, oh, that doesn't necessarily mean death. It means a total transformation of your being. Mm. And I I think that that paradigm shift and where it comes from and the anxiety and ultimately peace it produces for Cleo is really important to my reading of the movie, at least. And it's really important to know that like, yes, the the movie itself, because you you may argue Cleo herself sees Cleo is this capricious, that's the word they always use for Mm. her, and frivolous person, this diva. But she is now maybe for the first time really chafing at that definition of herself because now she has something that is very real that she is really concerned about, like Emily had said. And she is so frustrated with the way that her role play, the role that she has become in this world, it it distances her from people to the point where she can't communicate with them about this very real thing that's happening hmm. to her. And she even says herself, she chafes at this idea that um, in as far as she has embodied this spirit, right? Like this iconic presence as a diva and as a singer, it's also something that's been imposed on her very much, right? Like her boyfriend wants her to be that way. The musicians want her to be that way. She even says at one point, like you are exploiting me, right? Like, and we see these mannequins in the um, fashion 
shops around, we see these um, models modeling. Uh, we even see like like women in films themselves, right? In this movie, and in all cases, it's like. Cleo has be has been such a vessel for projection for people, right? For their fantasies, right? Like her songs are songs that they want to hear her singing. Her musicians use her as sort of an icon for their music. Um, even her boyfriend, like, clearly sees her as a sort of status symbol for him as this sort of successful, very beautiful woman. She even through the course of this movie, she sheds that persona in the sense that she takes her wig off. She changes from her fashionable clothing to dark clothing and when she does that she is received less favorably by the people around her right and like there are all of these mirrors that she keeps encountering all of these people keep seeing her this is so much a movie about Cleo's relationship to the way that she is perceived and as a consequence the way that she perceives herself and how mm -hmm. both of those things may be inexorably interlinked with one another in ways that are unfair right like I think that we get a Cleo in this movie that is sort of chafing at how she needs to perceive herself because of how she is perceived by others. And that is such a nuanced thing to explore. And it's explored so captivatingly visually in this movie, I think. Like, you really feel the public sphere on... And there's this amazing technique that Varda keeps using where I think that a lot of these shots have to be unsimulated because it really looks like people who are just in the streets of Paris who are just staring at the camera. Yeah, there have like, to be a bunch of extras all over and it's so important to sort of like as emily you had stated like when it because it's it's um cleo's point of view all of a sudden those camera shots are transformed right because we know even if we know from a, a structural perspective that the those people in paris are staring at the camera within the context of the film itself they're staring at cleo right and they're sort of like freaked out by her or put off by her or they're self-conscious because of their perception of her perceiving them right it's it's really remarkable the way that that the movie does that, I think, especially in real time that way. Yeah, totally. Um, I think that, yeah, the camera, the lens you're saying is basically her perspective, her vision of seeing the world that way, looking back at her. And I have s just so many notes, especially um, on <laughs> the music and stuff. But yeah. I think that, uh, yeah, in general, too, this – so she's dealing with a, a – terminal illness type of diagnosis, something really heavy and, you know, life or death, literally. Um, but I think that there are really good parallels here too, through the story of just like, what does it mean to be a woman in the music industry? What does it mean to be a woman in the entertainment business? What does it mean to be a woman in the in world? Public. That's not, yes. yeah, that's, uh, not a part of, uh, yeah. So I think, um, I was thinking about Lana Del Rey a lot too, hmm. especially once you got to the Saint-Trois performance, which is just absolutely haunting. So chilling. Like you it got makes goosebumps. me cry like a baby every time that scene. I, I've seen this movie at the Trilon before and back when it was just a 50 seater and they played the trailer before the movie for like months and they play a bunch of the song in that trailer and I cried every time I saw the trailer and I hadn't even seen the movie. And then I saw the movie and it, the song still made me cry. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's that's unbelievable. unbelievable. The performance. And then, so the way that the camera goes from, she's in the room with the musicians, Michelle Legrand and uh, the other guy, goofy guy. <laughs> and then it just zooms in closer and closer and closer to, to her as she's becoming even more emotive through the song. She's feeling it. She's like super in it and mm -hmm. it becomes closer zoomed in. And then it's just like the black backdrop and it's oh, just her face singing it. And yeah. she's like belting it from the heart, like this haunting, beautiful uh, melody where she's like, I'm about to die. That's well, what this is. Yeah, that's what the song's bringing out. Yeah, mm -hmm. and it becomes an opera, right? Like literally non-diegetic operatic string music picks up and plays along with her. Whereas before, I mean, they were rehearsing in her apartment with a piano, right? But like when it zooms in like that, there's like a full orchestration behind her. Mm -hmm. It's like she has transported herself through her art into this emotional state. Um, yeah. Be yeah. Because like the song, she's singing about her herself, right? She's, yes. we already talked about how she's like, she's coming to terms with her perception of herself with like how that reflected off of people in the world changes. Like she, 
presumably goes to that one bar that I mentioned before to get some sort of gratification, get some form of like the attention that she's used to, like some concern from the people around her and she doesn't receive it. Um, But, and so that's like her seeing how her impact on the world is reflected back at her. But that scene uh, with the Santois song, which uh, as Emily said, is, is actually written by Michel Legrand. Um, the, and I didn't know this, but he did all the music for the umbrellas of Cherbourg, which I watched a couple oh, months ago. And that's a fucking incredible movie too. Yeah. Wild ass music. Uh, but that scene is like so pivotal. If I can talk about it just for a second, because that is like up to that point, she's got, um, you know, these sort of anxieties and concerns about what she, uh, you know, about her diagnosis. She's got that throughout the, throughout the entire movie, but that is a point where like, all of the music, the tone of the movie starts to get a little bit heavier, I guess. Like you start to realize this is not just her popping around and talking to her friends and playing with her kitten and talking to her assistant and stuff. This is like, oh, she's now pretty convinced she's going to die. She tears off her wig. She puts on sunglasses. She puts on a black dress, like visually and thematically, everything changes in that scene. She goes outside and there's a kid tinkling on like a little herky derky piano. And that turns into like this dirge music that follows her throughout the rest of the scene. Yes. Yeah. After that scene, immediately following that scene, that song, that um, melody literally follows her out of the building right mm-hmm. like it's the it after it's introduced in her song it becomes the score of the movie yeah at least for several scenes following yeah can i go off about the legrand family now please let's please. do it so uh michelle legrand is a prolific award-winning french composer arranger conductor jazz pianist this is taken directly from his wikipedia right. um he but he is super prolific he wrote over 200 film and tv scores and was very involved in the French New Wave um, scene with films like this one. Um, and he worked in the jazz world with like the big heavy hitter legends, Miles Davis, John Coltrane, Stan Getz. Uh, he's got his, his own albums you know, out on his own name, and some of those heavy hitters are on those albums, like on the album Le Grand Jazz, which I definitely need to listen to after this. Um, but yeah, so he was born in Paris, all of that. But he is a part of a bigger family that is all of these incredibly talented artists. Uh, <laughs> namely, his niece is Victoria Legrand, the lead singer of Beach House. Oh, um, my God. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. I can't which believe is, I didn't put together that we were going to talk about this. That rocks. <laughs> which is so amazing to me. I, I hadn't seen any of his like work or knew his music and just being like, oh, my God. I knew she had this famous you know, family member, but I didn't know it was this guy. And wow, he's a part of such a huge uh, film movement. A dynasty. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, Victoria Legrand, the lead singer of Beach House, she, she mentioned, I think he's more of a, um, so he's her father's brother. uh, And she said in in an interview, I dug up that they weren't like necessarily close. Uh, They don't really, didn't really have contact. um, And he's since passed. um, But I believe. But yeah, she said that as far as like, you know, there's a relationship between blood and gene pool and musical notes flowing through my blood vessels. <laughs> um, and she had like some contact with like his wife or something like that. Mm. But then they also get into like your whole family, basically, the two of you and as well as her brother, who is Alistair Legrand, a film director who's directed some movies and uh, some of Beach House's music videos. Um, there's also Chris, Christiane Legrand, who was a member of a swinging, the Swingle Sisters sing. Wait, no, Swingle right. Singers. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I think Victoria has another. There's like a painter as well in her family. Just like a huge art family. Wow. Um, but obviously, if you know Beach House or any of that, you know world. Um, they have very cinematic, beautiful dream pop music, and a lot of their songs could easily fit into like a black and white film like this. I and, was just thinking uh, how bad I want a Victoria Day 5 A7. We got to get her brother to direct her yeah. in a movie. That sounds amazing. <laughs> I know. I want so badly to hear what her thoughts are on this film because you know it's got to have inspired her Inspired her at some point. Yeah. Um, but yeah, she talked about too, like in that interview, about how much her and Alex scally her band member in beach house want to do soundtracks and she's since talked about that a lot and a lot of beach house's music is very clearly like inspired by the film realm um and she sings in french and is fluent in french and stuff like that so 
a lot of black and white aesthetic stuff too uh-huh. in the beach house realm, the fandom, oh, yeah. the art, their music videos, their shows. Uh, so I just think all of that is super cool mm-hmm. and had to shout out the fam, the LeGrand fam. <laughs> now, now, as the world's biggest beach house fan, do you feel like something is just unlocked in your brain? Like, oh, now it all makes sense. There's this whole <laughs> other world that I get to explore of this dynasty of musicians. Yeah, no, absolutely. Because I, I didn't even realize it until I started looking into the background of this film. And it was like such a treat to be able to start like diving into that side of uh of my fairy godmother's family essentially <laughs> it's so it's so wild too that it's this this music or this uh movie specifically because like this movie is so much like you said about like specifically what it means to be an artist in the way that like artists can be consumed because they have to like they have to use their emotions to to like drive their art right like that's that incredible scene um where cleo's singing is like she literally makes the song her own very specifically she like makes it about her right like that song at the beginning of the song it's a song somebody wrote by the end of it it's about her and about mm-hmm. her life like very clearly and she hates that right because she hates that she had to feel that and had to put herself through that and she's like immediately she's like I don't want to play that song I don't want that song to be my next hit I don't want that song to be what I'm remembered for right and then like she leaves the studio and we immediately get all this imagery of women as consumed objects, right? Like mannequins and people in dresses. It's like uh, even people who go to bars and, and get hit on, right? And like she's so afraid of of having her identity be, be subsumed by this role that is being thrust upon her. And like that is such a, that is such a remarkably intimate thing for an artist to write about, right? Or an artist to make music about, like both in the case of Varda and in the case of Legrand, right? Like it's, it's gotta be something that they were really thinking about while they were making this movie, because in, in a way, like Cleo is such a stand in for lots of different artists, you know, or lots of different, like, like you had said, just being a woman in the public sphere is like, how do I navigate between who I am and who I want to be? And, who I have to be, who they want me to be, especially when all of a sudden that role turns from me, right? Like all of a sudden Cleo is dying and she's like, I don't want this anymore. Or like, I, I want to get away from this and it's too late or something. Right. And Mm -hmm. she's so afraid of that. Um, it's, yeah, it's such a, that's such a natural connection to make with beach house. It's wild. (laughs) Um, yeah, I would love to see their version of this film, a Victoria version of the film, but yeah. Uh, just the consumable nature of of Cleo as the pop star and of women in the film. That's I was thinking a lot about that too when I watched it. Mm-hmm. And like the public perception that's on you and her public persona even as this pop star who's Cleo, but her real name is like Florence, I think, yes. which we mm-hmm. find out later. Um, so all of that is like, she's trying to posture and figure out how does the world see me? How do these people in this diner view my song? What does it mean to hear my song on the radio in the, you know, or on the taxi ride and everything. Um, And it's like, she's trying to see herself through everyone else. And that lens of like her audience and the world. Um, But little does that world know until later until they like really and she she finds the people that she can like really um confide in uh they don't really understand or see what she's going through in that way mm-hmm. so it's like this very um she's having a very lonely and difficult day of the longest summer longest day of the year <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. Long, or, yeah longest day of the year <laughs> Uh, I believe this movie takes place on June 21st, if I was listening to the radio correctly. So you can Summer expect solstice. a re- re-up of this episode at that time, um, because this movie is 60 years old to, or this year. Six, I, think yeah. be- I think it released in April uh, of 62, but my goodness. Um, let's talk about how she gets there then from like that uh, you know, neurotic, very concerned, very like uh, worried about what people see or in her t- she's whistling her own tunes in the park and meeting a guy that she thinks she can vibe with and taking long bus rides to the doctor's office and stuff like that. Clearly the, the dirge scene is like a huge pivot point, but from there she's still upset. She's still sad. She goes to that cafe. Uh, she meets her friend, she has conversations and then she's kind of in the next phase. What What's changed there by then? 
Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, the the magic trick of the first act of this movie leads into the second act so capably, right? Because like immediately after that tarot scene, this is almost like a weird sort of madcap comedy, right? Where like Cleo is such a force. She's such a character. She's so much fun to spend time with that you end up sort of critiquing her the way that her um her the people around her are right where it's like god she's such a drama queen she's so melodramatic mm. even though it's like she has a very good reason to be melodramatic <laughs> and and we know that um and and it's so wild to to emily's point how like even and especially the relationships that are supposed to be intimate in her life, like with her boyfriend or with her partners, her musician partners or her maid, they are among the most performative of her relationships, right? Like her her scene with her boyfriend, like you had said, Jason, it's a funny scene. It's also like really sad to think about because like she is like literally posing for him when he comes in. There's that long shot of her face when she's like in repose in her bed for him to see. She complains later on about how she's always available when, when he needs her. Uh, she always gets made up. She's always like ready for him. And that is just part of what her work as a woman entails. And, and yet then, he's too busy to even kiss her for Christ's right. sake. Yeah. And then like all of that leads to this incredible transition that you had spoken of, um, Jason, which is like the the real like um, fulcrum of this movie, right? Which is that scene, that that song that like really lets us into Cleo as like a person through her art, sort of ironically, right? It's like all of that supporting sort of performance piece was to support her art. But once we get to see the art itself, it's like, oh, there was a person under all of that. Like there was an artist um, and I, so I think that's really important to your point to like get you toward that place. And then she has a series of really interesting conversations that Emily, you've alluded to, right? Like with her um, model friend and then later on with Antoine, obviously. Um, but what do you think changes there? Like, how do you think she gets from point A to point B in that way? Sorry, I, I just sort of set up point A, right? But like, I'm really, I'm really interested too in like, um, the the second act and third act of this movie, which really shows Cleo's um, character arc or maturity, maybe. Yeah, I think uh, what Jason and you are both pointing out is, and I agree with, I think the Saint-Trois performance is like the turning point mm -hmm. where then she is dressing differently. She's in all black. She's like really allowing herself to feel the fear of this uh, possible like terminal diagnosis over her head um and because that song even and she's a singer she's a pop star that song allows her to like feel it mm -hmm. despite mm -hmm. the fact that no one is like hearing her out or holding her pain yeah um and helping her like navigate where she's at emotionally it's like she allows herself to feel that and then goes about the day so i think by the time she um sees the friend in the in the uh, sculpture studio and everything, her friend actually is listening to her. And she's at that point already had the feeling within her of not just like the black and white type of fear, I guess at the very beginning of like, Oh, I guess I'm a dead woman. I'm mm. a, I'm a, you know, <laughs> I'm a goner dead pod walking. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm a total ghost, but instead she's more like, okay, this is actually a real thing. And I, she's sort of like allowing herself to, grieve i guess in a mm. more of a maybe more of a mature way or more maybe in more of just like a really deeply felt way yeah that yeah at the beginning is more so just like oh god like this is so scary and i'm just gonna assume the worst and it's black and white to me mm -hmm. literally and then becomes black That's and white that's um, a really smart way to characterize it because I never thought about this movie as a movie about grief, but it really is in a in an intimate way about um, Cleo essentially has a reckoning with how she's really feeling and what that really means for her life, right? And like after that first stage of disbelief and shock and um, anger and, and fear, it really becomes about sort of like taking a step back and, and through these relationships, which has always been how she's sort of... Um, understood herself understanding what it means that this may be coming to an end or like what it had always meant as a consequence. Um, I think that's, that's really fascinating to think about. Um, and I, I think the movie does such a good job of being surprisingly subtle about that because it's like, we only hear 
a lot of Cleo's thoughts in the very beginning, right? And then as she sort of settles in to these conversations with other people, we get a lot less of her interiority, sort of ironically, as we get more of her interiority being expressed publicly, where she feels comfortable talking about her real anxieties. Yeah, and like confluent to that, we're starting to learn more about her. Like it's only by the end, like Emily's saying, toward the end of the movie, we find out her real name is Florence. Mm -hmm. There's no indication that what she's been performing under is a stage name. Like maybe you could infer that from the name fact that it's a name Cleopatra and she's in Paris or whatever. But like I had no reason to believe her name wasn't Cleo until she says to Antoine in the park, like, actually my name is uh Florence. I I wonder like is it just that she's had all these opportunities to, you know, see the, how the world reacts to her, see how the world does or doesn't see her pain and then realizes like, oh, I'm, I'm going to have to make that. I'm going to have to see that for myself. I'm going to have to like express more of that. I'm going to have to like internalize some of that under like my own, as Emily was saying, grief. She's going to have to like come to terms with it herself because it's not necessarily something that she can, she like is consoled by Dorothy, her sculptor model friend but she's not going to be able to like process that through another person she's going to have to kind of deal mm -hmm. with it in some ways on her own before she can ever like confide in somebody truly yeah now that y'all are we're all talking about this i'm thinking of it differently too in terms of so at the beginning then is she really in this persona of i am a pop star i'm a public figure i'm this persona i'm this consumable woman in the world mm. um all eyes on me you know, even when it's uncomfortable, and certainly that is a very uncomfortable thing as a woman in public. But um, then once it switches, it's through her own art, through that song and that performance that's so haunting that she's like, then he, just a human being. She's like, it goes from, you know, this persona, this, this larger than life pop mm -hmm. figure who's like untouchable in some respects, or that's how we kind of see people in that way, in the public way. And then, but at the end of the day, at the end of the day, my goodness, they are just human beings. And she like feels that through her own art, through her own performance. And then is just like allowing herself to feel that and mm -hmm. be seen in a different way, even um, through her clothes and her dress and everything, but also allows herself to be more seen and, and more um, comfortable and transparent than with her friend and then with the guy in the park. And I don't think it's uh, like a just a coincidence that the big transformational, like uh, finally really being perceived and changing her own perspective and getting hope and all of that. I don't think that that's a coincidence that that's out in nature in a park hmm. either. Um, it's not in a diner. It's not. She's not when she's watching the right. movie. It's like wow. yeah, out around the trees. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's a very good point. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that the way you characterized it is really great, Emily, because it's like I I'm starting to characterize this movie or think of this movie as Cleo is literally, literally and metaphorically mourning the death of Cleo, right? Or I should say Florence is mourning the death of Cleo or the possible death of Cleo. It's like she... And and what's really interesting is there's this really – I talked about this a little bit before, but there's this fascinating confluence of the public and private perception of self, right? Where like Cleo is not just frustrated or not just aggrieved by the fact that the public – interprets her in a certain way and that can be restricting because of that perception of her that is also that has come to be how she feels about herself right like i think at the beginning of this movie like you had said emily she is not just embodying cleo for people she has really internalized that persona as herself and maybe even as the whole of her being right and the movie does a really great job of unpacking why that is and why that might be not entirely um, or not even at all Cleo's fault herself, right? So much as the fault of a society that perceives and consumes women in the way that this one does, especially when they're artists, especially when they make their living being consumables in that way. Um, but like you had said, it's like as she mourns this, this death of Cleo, and as she literally sheds, sheds the persona, she also finds a sort of freedom to be a, like a real human being, right? Like to actually talk about her anxieties and to actually relate to people, right? Like it's it's not a coincidence either that like the first person she talks to 
is an old friend who knew her when, right? Like when they were all struggling artists working together towards success, she can really relate to this person. And they, they really have a deeper connection through their shared passion than just the persona, which even her maid, right? Like her maid has a good relationship with her in many ways, but it's still one that is fundamentally with Cleo, not with Florence. Um, and then the ultimate sort of journey she goes on is with a stranger, right? With a person who she comes to have this sort of like deep connection with just in terms of circumstance, um, that, that sort of ultimately like brings her out of herself and allows her to be herself again. Um, but you're, you're right. It's like, this is, it's a movie about the sort of both the, the, tragedy and the liberation that comes with the necessary shedding of a persona um, when that persona is confronted with change or death, right? Because this is also a movie about death, right? Mm -hmm. It's about how death reconfigures your identity and reconfigures how you've been thinking about the world around you and your life to that point. Well, um, yeah. The, and there's, the there's something, part, right? Yeah. And there's something really... Um, Optimistic isn't quite the right, ooh, isn't quite the right word, but like um, conciliatory maybe about that like there is great freedom in the death of a persona because it allows you to be true again or to be more free than you had been. Mm. There is something that, I, you, Harry, what you said about um, public and private perception of the self there, I, I didn't get to watch this at the trial on trying to take COVID precautions and didn't head out, but it's on HBO now and they have short. I don't know if either of you caught it there, but they have short uh, TCM like bits about that movie. And one of them is about the music. Um, one of them is about uh, sort of like setting up the context of, of how the movie was released. Apparently the phrase uh, from five to seven or like day five or seven, however, like it is a play on a saying in French culture about what happens to a man, sort of like the, how a man spends his time, how he changes, whatever between like a businessman when he, between when he comes home, excuse me, when he gets off the clock no at work way. and when he gets home. So like oh, in that wow. span of time, what about his life changes? What about his performance changes? What, what, like, what is different? And it's like a winking, like, ah, this is about a male dominated concept, like the breadwinner coming home and doing a thing and like who he needs to be at work versus who he's going to be at home. And the ease with which he can shed that and, persona. And that, that code switching, so to speak, you know, and in this context, it's like, well, like Emily was saying, she's sort of, maybe she's Cleo and performing as Cleo in the first part. She's got the, like, she goes downstairs after realize, after hearing from a tarot reader that her doom is imminent. She's going to fucking die. And she looks in the mirror and like grins the biggest beautiful grin she can, right? That's not truthful. That's not like fidelious to who she, who she is and what she's feeling. She's performing to try and see like a better version or excuse me, an idealized version of herself in the world, right? Uh, and then, like we were saying, by the end, she's sort of made terms with it. She's come, she's made her peace. Um, it's kind of like if I had to like a eh, film guy thing, it's like she leaves work when she leaves her apartment after singing that song and she starts to come home and like to who she is, to who she like, how she's going to really relate to people around her by the time that she's in that park with Antoine and sort of like not giving over her whole self, but being, being way more truthful to like who she is, what she's feeling, all that kind of stuff as Florence. And that's, again, I'm stretching a lot. Uh, I pulled a hammy trying to make that take, but if I had to read into the story and the title, that's how I'd do it. That's yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, I actually, uh, funny enough, I told my friend to come watch this movie with me and I called it uh, Cleo from 9 to 5. <laughs> so <laughs> completely, completely wrong, but uh, there's something to that. And also a great feminist film. But uh, yeah, to your question too earlier of just like, what what do these characters of her friend, is it Dorothy? And then Dorothy, Antoine yeah. the soldier do? I think so by the time she sees her friend, she is feeling her human feelings. She is more so Florence. She's allowing all of that to be genuine and all of whatever. She's not putting on the persona as much then. But um, so I think when she sees her friend, it's more about just like, here's this person I trust. I support or who supports me. I support. I understand and can like hold my pain and and validate my pain and my fears in this way of like, you know, you're not a weirdo. You're not a silly girl. You're not some floofy pop star for thinking these things and being scared. And like, oh my gosh, I didn't know you were going through this. She kind of holds her in that emotional support system type of way. 
But then when she sees Antoine, so that's very important because we all need um, those people in our lives to have emotional support and like guidance and everything. But then when she sees Antoine at the park or she meets him and they just vibe, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is great, you know, great to vibe with cute strangers in the park. <laughs> but when you're, ha- when you have a uh, cancer diagnosis hanging over you, <laughs> we all know how this goes. <laughs> now, um, story. But yeah, he's, so he's clearly, he's in his full soldier getup. He's a soldier and he's talking about the war and like how um, people just die for nothing. There's, you know, it's pointless. It's meaningless that we have wars and death over war and fighting and all of that gruesomeness of mankind and everything in the world. But he, he kind of like shows her this new perspective and the what I'd say is like the full transformation that the tarot card reader talks about at the very beginning insofar as she's like, okay, these things that are scaring me, even though it's huge and personal and it's death, it's life or death for my life. Like these are, giant things that we all deal with these are huge universal truths and universal like unknowns you know death and loss and grief and sickness and and war and all these crazy things of just like being a human being in the world and she kind of sees that perspective and like understands well if you have someone that can understand that with you like you're not alone like you're not you're gonna Mm -hmm. be okay and she has hope then at the end, and she smiles at the very end, then like genuinely smiles. And I love that it ends right there. <laughs> yeah, it's also it's also like it's it's an almost the graduate moment, and then like sort of pulls itself back from that because that that is such a long take, right? And and like Antoine is also like he slowly starts to cry in that scene, and it's it's absolutely like heart wrenching that final moment, but it's that that validation where she says my anxiety is gone and then she smiles. It's like one of the most, one of the great cathartic endings Mm -hmm. in film history, I think. Um, Yeah. Antoine is really important to me um, as like, she even says to him at one point, we're in the same boat, right? Like that is, that is the nature of their connection. And it's so, there's a great irony to the idea that like, this is not like, this is not the end of artifice or the end of persona right with Antoine because it's like they are both still adopting these roles for one another the the point is that these roles are now mutually agreed upon and complementary right it's like he is being the person that she needs and she for him at that point and it's because they are like you had said Emily they're at they've reached this very similar point in their lives where in both cases their battles respectively are about to start right like it turns out that she's about to go to chemo which you know, could have a disastrous impact on her beauty, which has had been up to this point, um, this very important signifier of herself and identity. Meanwhile, he's about to go return to the Algerian war um, and maybe have everything that he believes in destroyed for no reason. But like they have this moment where they can recognize this shared anxiety and bond over it and give one another the recognition of mutual humanity and self-determination that they needed from one another, right? And I think that, like, to go back to the sort of craft of it all, like, especially because this movie happens in real time, basically, that's so important because we see we see Cleo transform so um, radically in just the two hours from five to seven that, like, it really gets you to think about, like, that is that is how it feels to be alive, right? It's like like you can imagine the sequel, like Cleo from nine to 11. And those two hours are probably just as impactful and just as transformative, right? Because I'm sure she meets other people and she goes on other sort of interior journeys and she changes as a person. And there is something very validating and cathartic about the idea that like, that is always happening to all of us, right? Is that we are always in this constant process of shedding and reconstructing our personas in the face of loss and grief and death and um, changing relationships. But there's something to the idea of that that chaos and that grief being so universal and so unavoidable that can itself be a sort of shelter because we know that when we have that recognition, we can help each other with it the way that Cleo and um, Antoine do at the end of the movie. And it's, it's like really beautiful in that way, right? It feels so earned because we have actually seen all of the like sickness unto death that had been leading mm-hmm. up to that point. 
Well, and it's, I feel for me, it felt earned because there are several scenes in which um, we're just getting transit. Like they're just uh, riding in a car or a taxi cab or whatever. And most of the time the radio is on and they're talking about the Algerian war. They're talking about, you know, domestic strife. They're talking about, uh, you know, tragedies at home and like normal things like, you know, oh, the museum, hey, tourists, the museum's going to be closed tomorrow. Like normal day-to-day bigger picture stuff that reminds you in that moment, like, oh, Cleo's story isn't the only story. This is still Paris. There's still 8 million people here or whatever. There are things going on. But also, like you said, it sets up what you and Emily were we're both talking about um with regard to like she now sees like it feels it feels like even though they do comment on it even though it is like part of the text of the movie and it's like extended scenes of like three or four minutes of just radio you do you get the feeling that maybe she hasn't like internalized that concept of like obviously she's distracted by her impending grief obviously she's not feeling great about things in general but it isn't until the very end that she realizes yes that like those things can coexist. Like there can be things in the world that I, that are bigger than me that I can't control. And there is this thing that I sort of can. And that's my reaction to this thing that might happen to me. Like that's my perception of myself. That's my relationship to myself. I can't necessarily change how uh, people see me, but I can change how I see me, how I present to like the mirror essentially. Um, I, I I I think that's what makes it so strong at the end is the fact that like, it's not just internally we've seen this uh this realization about the self happening it's like through the radio and through other people talking we we see that there's a world going on around her and finally yes. she sees that there's a world going yes. on around her at the very exactly. very end yeah it's like up to that point even when she was listening to the radio even when she was seeing masks in the um in the shop windows or or seeing uh sideshow performers performing on the street she was making everything her story right she was saying all of these things point back to me they're all omens of what's mm-hmm. going to happen to me. And they don't cease to be omens at the end of the movie. They just become omens for everyone, right? Like she realizes that her story is in part everyone's story. And that there is the sort of like the double-edged sword here is that like at the beginning, she chafes so hard against the fact that she is perceived by others, that she mm-hmm. has to affect this persona. But ultimately that perception also becomes a great sort of um, connector and unifier. It it brings her back into the world, right? It's like you are perceived and you are perceiving, but that also means that like your story is never only your own. Like you're never really alone. You're never really alienated from the world because whatever you're going through, someone else is going through too. Yeah. And their story is, is just as true as yours is. Um, but that doesn't make your story any less true either, right? It just means that they're both more valid for having a connection with one another. I know we're short for time too, but I also think there's a lot of good parallels for just like, even if this wasn't a life or death thing, but parallel of like women as they age and become less and less relevant in society, just any old woman, you know, um, that's kind of a death of you as like uh, a person who's, I don't know, consumable, valuable, Mm-hmm. has eyes on you uh and to, regardless of if you're like a woman in the art world or a pop star what have you yeah that's that is like the central metaphor of the movie right like it's super important to talk about that because she's mourning the death of her beauty straight up like she says i'm i'm more alive than everybody else as long as i'm beautiful is like one of the first things she says in the movie um later on like the cafe that she goes to and plays her song at was like the hip cafe that she visited when she was a starving artist with her starving artist friends. And she goes to like play that song to sort of like indicate how far she's come. And then it, it sort of turns on her because she feels irrelevant, right? Because nobody pays any attention to it. And she's like, Oh no, am I being left behind by the art world, by the beauty world? Is that what death looks like? Um, and you're right. Like it's such a, it's such a metaphor for aging as a woman. Um, and it feels like something that Vard is really working in and working with for sure. Yeah, and I just saw a, a few quick comments online. I was curious to see what people thought on Reddit and such. And people going, you know, you have to just wonder that this is uh, how Varda felt probably as a woman coming into the art scene, coming into the film scene, especially mm-hmm. such a male-dominated scene. Just kind of like, is anyone taking me seriously? Is anyone listening to me? Does anyone understand what I'm getting at or doing or, you know, putting out in the world or care? Um, yeah. And then it's like, yeah, some people do, and maybe not everyone gets it, but some people will, and you're not alone. And, well, and, and like, you're not just you. 
You know, it's like the feelings that you're experiencing and the the emotions that you have, they're not from you alone. They're real, right? They're a part of the world. They were from something. And that means that you are valid for expressing them, right? Like Cleo and all of her feelings are valid because they are real, because they are right. part of the world. Um, it's... Varda is totally in that cafe, by the way. There's there's a shot that's scrolling by and, and you can see her in it. So I nice. thought that was her. I was wondering yeah. <laughs> if y'all knew. I, I caught that as well. That's great. There are apparently a bunch of cameos from other folks in the French New Wave as well. Uh, I couldn't spot them all because I'm just not well versed enough. But um, it's funny you should say that, Emily, because I got the feeling that like during the – like you could see the movie clear from five to seven as Agnes Varda – externalizing some of that internal journey and like her relationship to herself. And like you said, her place, like, is she being taken seriously? What sort of thing does she need to do to be taken seriously in this male dominated field where, like I said, I mean, there might've been other female figures in the French new wave, but like Farda is definitely considered like the prominent one. Unfortunately, she probably is like the one because the men who ran uh, the French version of Hollywood were like, Oh, you got one. We have one Varda. We don't need it. We don't need any other women making movies. Kind of like, unfortunately, that's probably why. I'm sure that there were other women making movies at this time. But uh, like, and it, it feels like she's sort of coming to terms with that uh, through this movie as well. Like, if you're stepping back from what's in the movie to the person who made it, uh, I, I hadn't thought about that before. You brought up like her relationship to her own work, and it must be it, there must be parallels there too. Um. Cool. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like you said, this is such so deeply a movie about being an artist and mm-hmm. a woman and a woman artist, right? It's it's so deeply about all of those things, and it finds the just like the movie does, sort of um, thematically, formally, it finds the universal in that journey, right? And it like it extends that journey outward with so much compassion for people like Cleo um, that like, I think it's a really remarkable feminist film for that reason too. Right. Is that like you come away from this just feeling like, and I'm not a woman obviously. So I, I would only imagine, but like feeling so validated, right? Like feeling like, Oh, like this was me. Like, this is true. Like Cleo is even the, the most like, melodramatic of divas is a real person with real feelings that she is turning into art and struggling with just like everybody else. And like remembering that is so important to just like both the movement of feminism and of like humanism, broadly speaking. We've gotten super, super meta as we've transitioned out here, but before we call this the end of the episode, I do want to, I don't know. I want to call this junk drawer might be like, pejorative but i want to call it like the odds and ends section where we like all the things that we couldn't fit into the conversation that we they were able to get out and i will i will start off by getting the least meta i can get a load of that frog swallowing guy what the fuck was with that he like pokes his ear and spits out a gallon of water oh my god like as if the frog jumped into his stomach and then (laughs) splashed water out of him i thought that was pretty funny um Yeah, I have so many uh, so many other notes, but I'm going to try to condense my shout outs or junk drawer moments here. So I just I really loved all the cats. There's a lot of great cats in this mm-hmm, film. Mm-hmm. So many good kittens. There's also a lot of great cats in uh, Varda's first film, which is La Pointe Court. If you like other slice of life type stuff, that was a great black and white black and white um, black and white <laughs> film <laughs> of, of of a man and his wife who. Uh, where there's like a village and the city kind of interspersed throughout. So you see, you know, that type of slice of life that is in this as well. Um, And many cats. And then also just honestly, I have to just say this pun too. Corinne Marchand is drop dead gorgeous. Oh my gosh. I wanted to use that joke, but also I was so distracted watching this at the Trilon because it's straight up like she is absolutely insanely beautiful and so half the movie, I'm just like, I had literally my jaw dropped in my <laughs> mask because we're still in a pandemic, <laughs> which was probably good. But my goodness. Um, Google I know that's eyes also, all around. Yeah. Yeah. Huge hard eyes emoji uh, just at the trilon sitting there. But And I know that's totally not at all the, um, the meaning the of the message of hey, this but film. Like, but that's- 
it's formally part of it, right? Like I always do love um I love movies where the character the movie star is playing a person who is actually supposed to be as beautiful as they are in real life and we get to see people reacting to that. It's like cuz like there are like movies where like Robert Redford just plays like some guy and it's like it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. It's like every scene somebody <laughs> should be like smoking hot Holy to be just shit, a guy. That's Robert Redford. Yeah. <laughs> like right. they they can and so it it it's so good that that at least when she walks around people react to her as i actually would right of like <laughs> running away from her because she's too pretty to look at like yeah literally turning their head fully yeah. 180 degrees around jaw on the floor just like oh my god <laughs> so so pretty next. what <laughs> yeah um and then one more shout out to the yeah the the title sequence the opening with the tarot cards so cool i love that it's in color and i'm very excited to see her films that are in color um but also so shout out to my own tarot deck that i got this year which is Ooh. in black and white Ooh. and it's called bianco nero which i think means black and white in italian maybe um so i think ironically that's kind of cool because all my my cards are the black and white and her cards in this film are the only thing in color <laughs> I, I you gotta you gotta be like our translator you gotta watch this movie and tell us like oh is she actually reading is that that's right like you gotta get good enough at this to call her out on her bullshit because i i don't read tarot i i don't know if she, what she was saying was true or not i assume the guy who's hanging upside down is probably a bad symbol yeah i'll uh take a picture of the spread that she gets at the end there with my black and white deck so you can see Perfect. that it is fun that that whole sequence is in color too i wonder why like you could probably cook up thematic reasons in a reading, but like it, those colors it sucks really the do life out of her, Jason. Ah, oh my God. Emily. Wow. That's Amazing. not junk drawer stuff. That's like meat of the podcast That's, stuff. Yeah. <laughs> oh boy. Okay. Um, um, my, my shout out is uh, this movie is divided into chapters, which I generally don't love, but um, I think that like the, on top of everything else that this movie is doing, it's so effective as like a horror anxiety movie. And like, I really love the, the like almost semi joke of the chapters where it's like, Oh yeah. Now we're entering chapter 11, which is Cleo from six forty five to six forty nine PM. And it's like, <laughs> Oh my God. Like literally like the, spans of like down to like four minutes will go by and it's like this is what's happening to cleo now this is what's happening to cleo now it's like i'm gonna i'm gonna go home or like after this podcast i'm gonna start thinking about my life like okay now it's gonna be hairy from 8 21 p.m to 8 29 p.m <laughs> and it's like the way that like it makes time itself be this like crushing anxiety thing that like mm -hmm. chases uh Cleo around it's so effective at that and it combines that too because not every interstitial chapter is Cleo it's sometimes like oh the guy who shows the silent film at the theater this is him from these minutes to these minutes you know like in implying people and time change at the same rate like he's not gonna be the same person when she leaves as he was when she was there exactly. he's there with his with yep. his with his girl with the with Dorothy the model it's just Man, this movie works on so many goddamned levels. Um, yeah, it's a masterpiece. Emily, was, huh? was there anything else in your notebook that you want to get out before we start saying our goodbyes? Oh, man. Um, I think I want to say listen to women. Listen to marginalized voices in the Ooh. world. Hold your friend's pain if you can. Be there for your people. Um, be supportive to the people that matter to you, and they will to you. And it's all good. And listen to Stoop Kids Pod if you want to <laughs> watch. Yeah, watch movies at the Trilon. Watch uh, Hey Arnold. Listen to Try Love. But uh, yeah, no, I'm I'm very very excited to see the rest of these films in this series. And mm -hmm. clearly, Varda is in like a league of her own. Um, I did also write down a quote that Martin Scorsese called her one of the gods of cinema, <laughs> mm. and I agree with that. So that is exactly yeah, thanks for having me on. <laughs> Yeah, thank you for being on, Emily. Uh, and listeners, that is Dio du Cinema, the series at the Trilon, showcasing Anya Varda's films. We had Cleo from 5 to 7 this weekend. Le Bonheur is playing. One Sings, the Other Doesn't. Vagabond, Murmurs, and Documenteur are all playing May at the Trilon. Check it out. There's a link in the show notes. Uh, go to what Trilon. was that second one, Jason? Sorry. The uh, I'm not going to. I, I don't speak French. <laughs> I won't try. Uh, but you should check it out. You should check out more things at the Trilon. Uh, I could, I can't say any, any better than Emily did. Just be, be good. Uh, but thank you so much, Emily, for being on wonderful to have you as always. 
come back. We'd love to have you for more of these movies. Um, but for right now, listeners, find us on Twitter at Trilove Podcast. You find Trilon at Trilon Cinema and at Trilon.org. My name is Jason Daphnis and me, little old me, you can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. I've been Harry Mack and you can find me on Twitter at Shiitake Harry. And I've been Emily Sui. You can find me on Stoop Kids Podcast. <laughs> I miss Cody more every time that he misses an episode because this is where he'd have a fun, quaint quote to end the episode. What do you think he would do? Do you think ah. he's got... Um, he would probably pull a quote from Bob the Pianist. I feel like he's the most uh, Cody-like character. That guy uh, donned said... a costume to cheer her up. Yeah. Man, that's such a funny scene. It's a good uh, scene. You, maybe he said... We this could just sing saint in in yeah. harmony with him. <laughs> Uh, you can edit that in, super producer. Good.